Welcome to the Awake Church Podcast. At Awake, our mission is simple. Know God, take action. We pray this podcast will help you on that journey. Everyone had a good week, I hope. Good. Um, I want to just real briefly, I know that we have had new uh, mask mandates that the governor's issued, or I don't know if the governor's issued it, but I know that our mayor has. Um, and so I just want to just mention that real briefly that uh, churches are exempt, by the way, um, from that. That was something that happened over a year ago. And... Um, but for now, I would like to say, you know, for people regarding masks, at least for the moment, if you feel more comfortable wearing one, please do. Um, and if you are uncomfortable being around people who aren't wearing one, try and keep your distance. Um, or perhaps the online way to be a part of this service, which many are watching right now, may, might be a better um, situation because not everyone's going to be wearing them now. So just... Uh, I. I I know that there is a limited effectiveness from the mass. We don't know exactly how much, but um, for now, we're just going to leave this to you to choose to do this or not. And then if you're uncomfortable, just provide some space for yourself or, or watch online. So uh, I hate this COVID stuff. I want it to all go away. Lord, just get this thing out of here all the way. But uh, this is where we are. So um, that is that here. All right. I want to, um, this morning, and hopefully, Lord willing, for the next week or two or three, to talk some about some of our heritage that we have, uh, that I don't talk about a ton, I read about it a lot, but I want to talk some about the heritage that we have as believers and what's been passed to us from early on till now. And it's, it's an amazing thing you, you and I have, you know, so many times it's easy to not remember or keep it in the forefront of our mind all that's been done for us. Obviously, what the Lord has done, yes. But what's been done with him through other people to give us what we have right now. When I think of the Bibles that we have right now, to think of what's taken place over history to have these words, you know, the dedication of the Jewish people for thousands of years to, I mean, in with great detail and discipline, writing these things, making sure they were just exact, I mean, giving us the, the Old Testament, and then all that has taken place to keep that alive without being killed and burned and completely done away with into the New Testament. Incredible what we have in the lives that have been given, many of them killed because of the Scriptures, um, and yet we have this right here. So sometimes I'm reading my Bible too. It's like you are not only looking, reading history and reading this life and this life comes off, off the page because they're living words, but also this Bible has a story that goes back into time of its survival and God taking great, going to great lengths to preserve it for you and I. And it's the same with our faith. You know, what's been brought to us, of course, the Bible is a big part of that in explaining this to us, but the faith of believers 
going from generation to generation to where we are now is something I just want to touch on. We're not going to talk about it a ton. And I, there's, it's going to be really impossible to do this great justice in a few minutes to talk about 1,500 years of thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who've carried this torch for us so well to help get it to where we are now. You know, I believe that every generation is carrying a torch, you know, from one generation to the next. And you get that link broken and, you know, it doesn't continue on. But we have this light and we have this hope and we have this salvation, this great salvation that people have passed on over and over to us. So I want to go through a little bit of that history. I think sometimes um, when history is forgotten or when it's revised in ways that aren't accurate, you, so much is lost. And you can tend to repeat the things that were negative parts of that history if we're not thinking about it or if it's, if it's lost entirely. So we want to keep this alive. And uh, so that's part of what I want to talk about here this morning. Another thing related to this is that it's one of the first passages that we're given in the law, first part of the law, the Ten Commandments. One of them was to honor your father and your mother, right? So that, it says, it will go well with you. There's something about honoring our fathers and mothers in the natural, but also, I believe, in the spiritual, that has an honoring, uh, that, excuse me, that has a blessing and things go well for those who honor and not dishonor. And part of even talking about Christian history today is an honoring of our spiritual mothers and fathers. Uh, it's one reason why I, I, I get energized, but I also am, just grow in thankfulness probably as much as anything. As I read, I read snippets of Christian history every day. And sometimes it's two or three different highlights of people throughout the centuries who have carried this torch so well, and it's so inspiring to me. And this, I think, is we can honor those that have gone before. There, there definitely is a blessing attached to it for us. So, all right. And this journey, you know, from the beginning of, let's say, around Jesus' time, going forward of Christianity, is uh, it's a dual journey. It's the, the carrying of faith and this torch, as I mentioned, from generation to generation, but it's also of a journey of the scriptures. And I don't have time to go into that one into detail at all either, um, other than just a, a few highlights, because this Bible has an incredible journey, and we'll do it. I've done messages on that. We'll, we'll do a series on that as well later on. But um, let me go back in time a little bit to the time of Jesus. Of course, Jesus was the fulfillment. He said he came to fulfill the law. He came as the fulfillment of what the prophets had prophesied. Jesus himself fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? They saw glimpses and they were speaking of this Messiah and prophesying. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And the things that, I mean, just being born fulfilled prophecies. And then as he, the things that he spoke and the things that he did, all these were fulfillment of prophecies. And it's like clarity begins to come about the purposes of God, the plan of God, the heart of God, all of this. It just changes entirely when the Son of God shows up wrapped in the skin of a man and starts speaking and starts demonstrating and starts doing the things that are really in the Father's heart. And then, of course, Jesus grows up, has ministry, selects his disciples who later become apostles, 
And then he's crucified, is raised to life. Thank you, Jesus. He was raised to life. And then the last part of Jesus' ministry was really ascending. And it was when he went back to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit back to earth, to us. And that is many times called the birth of the church, the birth of the body of Jesus, as Paul refers to, to us as you're a body. We are part of this large worldwide body of Jesus Christ, with Jesus as the head, and filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so we are this body of Christ that was birthed at the day of Pentecost, basically. And from there on, the Lord has empowered this body, his people, to move forward with everything that they need, everything pertaining to life. Then we have the scriptures he's preserved. We have the spirit living inside of us. And then he can, as we follow him and have relationship with him, he changes our mindsets. He moves us forward. He gives us power, power over sin, power to pray for other people to be healed, all of those things. And you see that taking off as you read the Gospels, and then you read the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, of course, you see where something takes place with a guy named Stephen. And Stephen was not an apostle. Stephen was a man who was serving along with the apostles, serving tables. He was making sure that the widows got fed and that the church had, was really a community at this, this period of time. People were sharing, and there was food together, and this brand new fledgling organism is growing, and so Philip is there serving, but Philip, something happened inside of him that caused him to say, you know, Jesus said, he was probably one of the followers of Jesus, my guess, this is uh, my speculation, is that he heard the words of Jesus say, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works, because, I can say that because of what Philip did. Philip started to preach. He started to pray for people. He started to cast out demons. Miracles start happening through his life. Revival takes place where Philip is, so much so that he gets arrested, and ultimately he, I said Philip, Stephen who's, is who I'm talking about. Sorry about that, I'm... I'm ahead of myself in my brain, um, Stephen. And Stephen does all these things, gets arrested, and then they, they kill him. Philip also served with Stephen, but talking about Stephen. And then they stone him. And so I wanted to, this is, let's see if I can get this working today. Sometimes I can. There we go. That would be one of the images of the stoning of Stephen. Um, and at this moment, the reason why I'm sharing this story is because this started something. So, of course, we know that Paul, who was Saul at the time, was watching. He was there. And when he saw this happen, he was in hearty agreement, he says, hearty agreement with the killing of Stephen. And then the Lord started doing something, of course, later with Saul, who became Paul. But this moment is a marked moment in history, the church has just been born, and Jesus had said when he left, go into all the nations and preach the gospel and do these things. But the Christians weren't going. They were staying. 
in Jerusalem until this. And when this happened, it's like it ignited something of a hatred, of a, a brutality, really, in the, the Jewish community, the non-believing Jews, as well as the Romans, and there started to be more persecution for Christians. So Christians got sent, but they really were running. They really were going out. This persecution pushed Christians out in, into all of the world, into the Roman world, and that you know, was a large area. Um, in fact, the Roman Empire, at this point in history, this was the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean, uh, and they had what they called the Roman Way. So they had a lot of what we would have highways today. They had a lot of pathways between these continents between these cities, between these kind of nations, in a sense. Um, and so the Christians, and then a few years later in AD, when they crushed the temple, the Romans crushed the temple, and then the Jews were dispersed throughout the world. You got Christians and Jews who are going all over these places. In fact, when Paul is writing um, about Asia, in my mind, I'm thinking of India and China and all those things. Well, this was Asia right there <laughs> for him. It's just part of Turkey. Uh, and so you see the context of some of the writings that we read was in these regions. One of these regions are mentioned in the Bible. It really is just that area. And so you've got Christians going out all over the place because they're getting persecuted. But what happens is through this Greek language um, and through the scriptures that were then being translated, it really, it, they, were, they were written in Greek, you, start, you see the Christians going all over the place in places that Jesus wanted them to go, but it really came through persecution. The push into the world was not one of them just going voluntarily, voluntarily, most of them. It was through persecution. But the gospel ends up getting spread all over the place as they're going all over the place. And you've got then the apostles, they start going, to lots of different places. And here's a few that we know of, is we know that um, Thomas went to India, James went to Spain, Peter went to Turkey, Andrew to southern Russia, Philip to Iran, Bartholomew to Ethiopia, Matthew to Syria. You see them going all over the place. And then you've got hubs of Christian training going on in northern Africa, and you've got it in Antioch, and you've got these, and in Jerusalem, you've got these hubs where People are getting trained up in the gospel, in the, what Jesus has said, and that's taking off. But this persecution is severe. And for the next, after Stephen gets killed, for the next 250 years, you've got different levels, varying levels of persecution, but persecution coming strongly against the church against people who call themselves Christians. In fact, other people called them Christians. They weren't necessarily calling themselves that. They were followers of the way. Uh, they were believers. Um, but this persecution was severe, where they're getting killed, they're getting tortured. And for these 250 years, if you can imagine this, 250 years is basically the same amount of time we've been a nation if you're an American. So think about from the very beginning, 1776 for us, to now, close to 250 years. Imagine that length of time is the time of severe persecution 
for the, for the entire church. Where every generation, if you have family history, and let's say your family history goes back to George Washington or however many, eight generations or so, to George Washington. Think of that. Everyone between him and you would have been a persecuted believer. That's the amount of time that people were severely persecuted. And the stories that emerged, if you ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you haven't, I encourage you to read it. Uh, it highlights many of these stories of what people did and how they lived. And I mean, teenage girls up there with their faith and they get dragged. I mean, the heartlessness of uh, the persecutors to drag these like teenage girls and many, many, many others and they would not deny their faith. And so they would get uh, beaten, they would get their head lopped off or they would be tortured. And oftentimes this was a normal thing for every believer during these 250 years to know that when they signed up to follow Jesus, this meant I will probably die. I will probably be killed. Imagine, you know, you have an altar call and you say, okay, if you receive Jesus today, here's what this means. You're probably gonna get tortured to death. How many people would continue to say, I still want him? Well, that's what the reality, what was going on for these 250 years. And when someone was being tortured, so many times, there's so many stories I've read where family members, loved ones, would come to that place where they're being tortured or eaten by animals in the Colosseum or wherever, and they would cheer their relative on. Don't deny your faith. Be strong right now. This pain's only gonna last for a little while. That's what was happening in the Christian family for these 250 years. In fact, believers, because Jesus lived and was crucified, persecuted so severely and died, every believer during this time frame felt like that is what a Christian does and is. They were ready for hardship. They were ready for persecution. Isn't that amazing? So the, the, the little persecution we get right now, I mean, it really is nothing comparatively. And there weren't, in fact, during this whole period of time, once the Romans said you have to, um, and this happened a little bit later, but you have to bow and worship the emperor, the Roman gods. If you don't, you'll be killed. That happened for a, during a lot during this period there were a lot of Christians who wouldn't become teachers or get involved with a lot of things um, in the world because they made them teach about the Roman gods being God. And so it, would, it was a conflict of their faith, so they started to, to shy away from getting involved in a lot of things because they couldn't do it with a good conscience. Um, and then after these 250 years, and man, I would love to share stories, more and more stories about the believers during this time that are just incredible, full of faith. We don't have time to do that. Full of passion, not denying him. This is, this is our fathers and mothers, when I think of in, in the spirit. I mean, the, they were so dedicated to the Lord, running from place to place, fleeing from city to city, uh, or sometimes just saying standing. When Polycarp, who uh, one of my heroes there, died and, and he was killed in 155, you know, he was in his 80s. He'd been running, 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 running. He was a disciple of John. And at the moment when they finally caught up to him, he thought, I'm not gonna run anymore, I'm too old. 
And they said, okay, we're gonna give you a chance to deny Jesus Christ. Deny him. All you have to do is deny him. Say it. And he said to them, in my 80 and six years, I've served my Lord and Savior, and he's done me no wrong. Why would I deny him in this moment? Do what you will with this body. That kind of devotion, those are the words of Polycarp as they killed him, strangled him, and then burned him. And then something happened after these 250 years of persecution. Um, a man named Constantine, who was fighting, trying to win, the, it was a certainly pagan empire, but he had this, uh, whether well, it was a vision type of thing, as he described it, something in the sky of a cross that led him to believe that Christianity been, might be real and maybe Jesus is God. And so he kind of prayed that uh, I'll know that you're real if I win this battle. And so then they fought and they won. So to him, this is a done deal. Then Jesus is God and I should be serving him. And so he changed and then he started to really win more and take over. Uh, he became the emperor and he, it's really a significant moment in church history because he stopped the persecutions against Christians. So in one day, you had basically 250 years of severe persecution where your life is on the line and you're running to all of a sudden, the emperor says, no more persecuting Christians. It was a huge sigh of relief. Can you imagine what that was like for every family throughout the whole Roman Empire? All of a sudden, you don't have this. You're not going to be killed anymore. And so there were some really good things with Constantine, but there was also some really bad things that came out with Constantine as well. Obviously, the persecution stopping was a good thing. Believers started who couldn't really communicate in a, in a wide way. They could now begin to communicate. They could uh, get to know one another in ways they hadn't previously. Of course, the churches were all hidden at this point. And they had the gifts of the Spirit moving in them. They all believed in, in miracles, or I should say, all most believed in miracles, praying for one another. All those kind of things were moving. And they'd been, you know, they were hurt, harmed, injured. And then Constantine comes, says, no more persecution. And a few years later, about 12, 13 years later, he recognizes there's a lot of division among the believers. So let's get some of the leaders together and let's decide on some of these false doctrines. Arius was one of the... Uh, guy who was, was denying the divinity of Jesus, and so there were some difficulties there, and he said, we need to get some consensus, so he invites 1,800 bishops, which were basically the pastors of that day that were in all of the Roman Empire. He sends an invitation, pays for their travel to come, and let's decide some stuff. 300 of them show up. So you got 300 bishops, pastors that show up for this meeting that Constantine, the emperor, they were, they were probably wondering, is this a setup for one, you know, only been 10 years or so since he, he was, they were killing us. Um, but he puts them up. They're there, I think, over a month. And they start discussing things, these 300 people. And in, in reading some of this, you see that some of them there have one eye because so they've been gouged out. Some of them are burned over good parts of their body because they've been tortured. Some of them are missing limbs. They've lived through torture. And now they're all gathered, 300 of them, in a room Constantine opens the meeting and says, we need to decide some stuff, and he turns it over to them. And that's where they decide that Arius is uh, 
off his, off his nut and they needed not listen to him. Um, other things happened there. Someone stood up, but you know the guy that we know as St. Nicholas from Christmas? He really was a real guy. He was actually a bishop. Saint, uh, he was made a saint later by the Catholic Church, but Nicholas was his name. He was a bishop there. One of the guys stood up and said, Jesus wasn't God, and he went over and slapped him across the face in this meeting. That's one of the things that happened in that meeting. But they then came up with the, the Nicene Creed in this meeting, which was important. The Apostles' Creed was a little bit later, but the Nicene Creed was them deciding what kind of things can we agree on together about this faith that we have. And of course, we can probably read it here. This is Constantine seeing the, the sign and then moving on. The Nicene Creed, I gotta get closer for that. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and in invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made for us, men, and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate, of the Virgin Mary and became man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried, rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, proceeds from the Father, excuse me, and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic in apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Of course, in there it says, I believe in the Catholic church. There was no Catholic church at that point when they made this decision. They used that. It meant a unified body of Christ is what it meant to them at that moment. It wasn't talking about a denomination. And so this Nicene Creed then is agreed upon so they can take this to all of their churches when they go home. These are the, these are the things we believe. Together, some of this communication is now happening. And of course, they've got copies of Paul's letters and all that that have been passed down and hung onto, and they would read them in the, in the services. And then for this period of time, from 311 or so, uh, for the next couple hundred years, there's a rapid expansion of the body of Christ, of missionaries going all over the place. St. Patrick is one of those, what an amazing guy basically from England, but goes to Ireland. You know the story of him, they say, chasing the snakes away, but he basically what he meant was he converted a nation um, through his, his life and his ministry. So you've got missionaries going all over. You've got believers growing everywhere. A lot of great things are happening. The, the scripture gets canonized during this period, about 367 is really with Athanasius, who was a bishop in... Um, Northern Africa, he puts together this first canon of 66 books that he believes is right. It gets voted on. All of those things take place. Now, that happens during this time. Hospitals started. You know, Christians are the ones who started hospitals, the idea of hospital care. That was around 325. But then there's also some mixture that happens. Some of Constantine's mindset as well. Uh, some of the things that he introduced, some of the celebrations were kind of pagan, now mixed with Christian some of those type of things weren't good that he released. Um, and then the worst part, though, is that 
with Rome's involvement with the upper echelon of leadership up to the emperor, now involved, agreeing that the church is free from persecution, they not only stopped, they didn't stop there, they got involved with the, the dealings of the church. So a secular then involved in the church and started making decisions in the church and even over time started appointing bishops. So you have a secular person appointing the leaders in the church. Does that make any sense? No. And that starts to become a problem. And again, you've got people who were persecuted for these 250 years, not none were that old, but persecuted for a portion of their life. They now have this freedom and now they can go to church and not worry about getting killed, but now you've got other people start joining and they're not there because their hearts are changed. They're there because there's opportunity for advancement because the Rome is now leading the charge and so I could, might, they might, you know, it's like a political spirit starts getting in there. So you've got this mix of these true believers going, what are you doing here? You don't believe. Well, I said, well, now it's, and, and you know, Constantine basically said, you know, well, later on a little bit, was everyone's a Christian now. All of Rome was Christian. So it wasn't a genuine thing in the heart of everyone. And so then there starts to become this mixture that starts taking place over time, and which fueled something called monasticism. Monasticism is an ascetic life where you want to live away from everybody and really seek God and live holy and fast a lot. That came from this mixture in church. It, hadn't, it didn't exist before, really, other than maybe John the Baptist type of way back. But this, because the church began to start becoming a mix and now Rome's involved and they're dictating what's going on in church policy, there's this desire for, man, I don't want any of that. I want the pure life of a Christian. So you find our, what we call our desert fathers. They start um, living out in the deserts and in caves and other people start being drawn to them and they have disciples. So you have this whole monastic movement that takes place during this time. And then... Along the way, a lot of extra traditions start being um, infused in the church. And some of those are where the leaders, the pastors have to wear all these fancy robes and vestments. None of that was there originally. For hundreds of years, the pastors, they dressed like, just like everybody else in the Catholic church. But it was later on, they said, oh, we gotta change, we gotta separate ourselves or we're a step above everybody else. So we're going to do that by the way we dress, and then they started to make them, they couldn't get married, so they had to take that vow. Then they started saying that, you know, um, to venerate Mary in almost a godlike status, that started to take place. So you see this, this infusion of a mixture and a mixture, and throughout this whole time, you always have this remnant and this group of people who were true in their faith, who've just lived through all this stuff. They still are strong in the Lord, but they are, there's, there's, they're having difficulty with the mixture. So not only are the monastics of that start, but there's another group called the Waldensians, and they have this true, genuine faith. They're from the France, Gaul was Gaul then, area. They spread throughout Italy and all over the place, and they have this genuine faith. But they get persecuted then by the established church, which takes the name, you know, the Catholic church over time. So, and then popes begin, the hierarchy just starts infusing into this, uh, into this organization that really gets institutionalized. And so that's what you, we have to be careful of and some of the things we want to learn from from the past is there could be too much institutionalization of something. Once the hierarchy gets in control 
and starts dictating to your life. And when secular government is involved in that, that's one of the reasons why the founders of our nation didn't want that. They didn't want the government control in the spiritual lives. It wasn't the church the other way around affecting the government. It was, the, they're like, we didn't want, we didn't want a Rome-like situation where they're dictating to us how we have to believe and appointing pastors and all those kind of type of things. It's similar to that actually in even Switzerland right now. You know, there's a state church of Switzerland and the government has a say-so over who the, who the leaders are. Um, and then um, further on, I'm gonna go fast forward a little bit here toward the 1300s, even I'll go back and forth a little bit, but Pope Boniface said, further we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. So you go from these followers of Jesus being persecuted to all of a sudden this declaration that you're serving the Pope. This mixture just got worse and worse and worse over these hundreds of years after the persecution. And then, of course, one of the biggest parts of this whole change in a bad way, by the 1100s, it was illegal for the common person, for you, to read the Bible have a Bible, or to read it. Plus, it was in Latin, so you had to know Latin anyway. But if you say you did, and you had one, it was illegal for you, because only the, the pastors, the bishops, the pope, could properly interpret that for you. That's what took place. Imagine it being illegal to read your Bible. And it was only up to me to tell you what is in there. I mean, that's, that's where the, the Catholic Church went. That's where it went. And then there's persecution against those who have the scriptures because um, they're not supposed to have them. Of course, other things took place. The Crusades that we know about for a couple hundred years, four major Crusades, there were a lot of smaller ones that went with this. You, you got this Christian group that now mutates into something that it becomes more political, institutionalized, and then now they have armies. And instead of sharing the gospel for people to, as an invitation for them to join, it's now, if you don't become a Christian, we kill you. So the very thing that happened to them in their history, way back, is forgotten. The way they were treated, that is all forgotten, and now we're doing the same thing that used to happen to us, really, without even re realizing it. Now you've got crusades slaughtering Jews, slaughtering Muslims, slaughtering other Christians. All those happened in the Crusades. Uh, between a million, no one really knows, between a million and four million people through the Crusades slaughtered through Christian organization. And that's sad. It's part of, part of this history, unfortunately. Very sad. And it's still, honestly, today, um, in some of my travels, if I go to, um, if I go to the Middle East, um, or you talk to some Jewish folks actually here or in other places who are Orthodox Jews, they will bring up the Crusades. They, they see Christians as them. So if you are a believer, you're, you, call yourself, you, you call yourself a Christian, you are in the category, especially for Muslims, of slaughtering people. That that is, it's so interesting. Now we would see Islam is more that way, right? With extremists, anyway, the extremists of Islam, not 
all of Islam, but we would see that. They, they look at us that way many times um, because of what happened with what I would call the hijacking of the body of Christ by the Catholic Church and this organization. They had lots of power. Okay, let me bring this to a close here. We've, then we've got, oh man, through all these crusades, you also have the Inquisitions, which was a killing of a lot, torturing people to admit things that they weren't really doing. And you got people during the Inquisition time, you could um, just say some sort of one accusation. This person, I saw them doing this. No trial, and they would just torture you. I mean, one person saying anything, and they would follow up, and they would kill you. So many thousands, tens of thousands of people died through all these Inquisitions. They were trying to purge um, the, the empire from anything that would be against uh, the Roman Empire and the, the, the Catholic Church, really. And then thankfully, of course, there are always great people and always pockets and remnants of people throughout all periods of history and certainly during this period. But something needed to change. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. And in the 1300s, a man named John Wycliffe was born. And John, there's a... Crusades. John um, had this passion for the Lord. He was an educator. He's a theologian, and he would he had this thought. He had this feel and the sense that the common people need the Word of God in their own language, so that we're not just being told things by those in leadership. Of course, that did not sit well. But he started to do it anyway. Started to translate this, and boy, it was a reverberation way beyond his lifetime both a hatred from the enemy and from the Roman church against him, but in a great way a reverberation that inspired many other people. John Hus also was inspired by Wycliffe. And John was burned at the stake in the 1400s. So I've been to his church. We took our staff there in Prague, uh, the Czech Republic. Um, he was burned there and he had this passion and fire for God and for truth. And he was try, they tried to squelch him, and, and of course they did kill him. But he had so many followers, that just became a movement. And it started going from there. And then, then that led into the Reformation period. But John Wycliffe and John Hoos were huge in sparking a great fire that started a fire in other people's hearts that started to change this whole thing. And then we get to the age of the Reformation. And we'll talk more about that next week. But by these, the 1500s, the church, which was supposed to be, the Bible says that the body of Christ is the pillar in the support of truth. That's one of the things that the body of Christ does. But at this period in time, it was not. Certainly, it was in hidden pockets. But the, the church that people called the church wielded a power and a force that was really evil. Uh, keeping the word of God from people, killing you if you did not agree, persecuting in wide swaths, establishing the popes, saying they're infallible agents, venerating Mary, all of those things had taken place. And the church and the state really had become one with lots of control. Thankfully, this fire that starts getting lit through John Wycliffe and John Hoos is gonna to touch Martin Luther and many others, and we'll talk about that next week. But I know it's leaving this on a difficult note, but this is where we are in history. The Dark Ages, I'm so glad that I didn't live during that period. 
And we have a completely different place that we get to live. Here we have the opposite that's been done for us, living in a nation where Christian concepts and godliness was really some of the formation of our nation has been passed on to us through various forms. Certainly there's a, bad, a lot of bad things. There's a mixture here too, a clear one. And it's, you know, I would say some things are getting worse. But honestly, part of what the Holy Spirit does is prepare and lead and help people through persecution. So whatever is coming for us is okay. And our minds are to be set that we're gonna follow Jesus regardless of what happens. I'm gonna live the right way regardless of what happens. I've got a whole history of thousands of years of people who have done this and done this so well. They're living in the world right now, many nations right now. And that we are supposed to have this faith that's immovable, unshakable. It says the, the Bible says in Hebrews, we have an unshakable, immovable kingdom. And we should be unshakable, immovable, regardless of the society, the culture that we're in. And we can learn so much and be inspired. I'd like to encourage you to read some snippets of some of these people who lived before and how they, the mindsets that they had, and the passion, the devotion to Jesus, and no complaining. No complaining, just saying, ah, I get to do this for my Lord. I get to live this way for my Savior. Pretty incredible. It's inspiring for me. So let's leave with that. Lord, thank you for your sustaining power through every generation. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you came. Thank you, Jesus, what you've done. Thank you that you have empowered your church throughout time. And even in difficulty, you gave them peace and you gave them life and you gave them help. And Lord, I'm asking that we would, even in this moment, as we are looking at the culture that we're in right now, that we would even um, reinforce who we will follow, what we will, how we will live, what we will be a part of, what we won't be a part of. Lord, I'm asking for your help for all of us and Lord, thank you for those who have gone before. Thank you for the torches that have been passed to us to live in this day. Thank you for the scriptures that we have. Thank you for this great faith that's been passed all the way down to where we are right now. And Lord, I ask that we would run well and that our hearts would be fully devoted to you. And God, thank you for those fathers and mothers. We just honor them even right now. Say thank you for them. And we honor their lives the way they gave their lives, the way they lived. We bless you, Lord. Lord, I ask for your grace and your help, your peace for us throughout this week. I ask that for encounters with you. I ask that you would stir us up and give us visions, dreams, um, experiences with you where we get revelation for other people. Lord, may we be that Romans chapter 12 type of fellowship and congregation that are looking to build one another up at all times. Thank you, Lord, for the new members that have been added. And Lord, thank you for what you have ahead of us. Thank you for what you're doing with the building. And thank you for the future, for every single life in here. And thank you for the hope and joy, forgiveness of our sins, freedom from sin. Thank you we get to worship. We bless you and give you this rest of this day and the week ahead in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to today's message. For updates on future episodes, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. 
For more information about Awake Church, visit awakechurch.com.